Welcome to Concerning the Spiritual in Art, a podcast exploring spirituality, consciousness, and the creative process. I'm your host, Martin Benson. Welcome back, y'all. Man, I have another just mind-blowing episode. Maybe it's just me, but I keep getting my mind blown every week. Uh, by all these amazing people I get to connect with and meet through this platform. And uh, today, my episode with Eric Belts, uh, incredible artist based in Santa Barbara, California, it will not disappoint. Um, Eric and I begin our conversation by talking about his uh, patient and devotional drawings and sort of what that means to him and how that sort of idea came about. Um, and then we get into a lot of like notions, not only around like his practice as an artist, but just like the role of artists, the landscape that artists have to traverse, sort of ideas that relate to our own process or how artists even see themselves in the world. Um, Talk about a lot of these big sort of components to just outside of just the actual making of the work, but sort of like this landscape we have to traverse as artists itself. And he has just a lot of amazing insight and incredibly um, just vulnerable like ideas that he shares about his own perspective and his own experience. Um, And we just get to touch on a lot of notions related to consciousness and sort of the relationship that we have to sort of these universal truths that might be underpinning our experience of the seemingly chaotic world that we're in. Just a lot of incredible insight and beauty and sort of amazing ideas that were exchanged between Eric and myself. And uh, I think y'all are going to really enjoy this episode. Um, So here you go, Eric Belts, y'all. All right, Eric, welcome to the podcast, man. I'm super pumped to connect with you. I, I can't forget the moment where I came across your work and feeling my brain just explode with awe when I saw your drawings and the kind of work you're making. And so it's an honor for me to connect with you in this way and to learn more about what you do and then all the ideas that kind of surround uh, your process as an artist. And I really loved on your website how you describe what you do as like patient devotional drawing. And I thought that would be like a really cool place for us to sort of begin this dialogue. And so I'm wondering from your perspective, like what is devotional drawing mean to you? And has this always been a way you felt about your art or has this kind of been something that's evolved in your mind in terms of how you approach what you do? Yeah, I think that is a good place to start. And thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast. I uh, really appreciate reaching out. Um, You know, I uh, I play with language in my work a lot. Um, I used to have a lot more actually like literal text in my work, but I uh, also just really like um, words that can mean multiple things. Mm-hmm. And the the patience and devotion thing came from an LA Times article where they mentioned patience and devotion to uh, my drawings because it's evident that they require a lot of time um, to make. And so I, the, you know, just at uh, changing devotion to devotional re-situates the connotation of that mm-hmm. work. One is just about waiting over time. <laughs> and one is a, a, another connotation of then uh, the same word with devotional puts it into like kind of a religious context so that there's like a deeper connection to something which might <clears throat> point to why somebody would want to spend time doing something. Mm-hmm. And you know, for me, the devotion part, I think, comes for or it comes to the 
or it's attached to the idea, like whatever idea I'm trying to um, manifest in my drawings, they just, they take the time that they take to make. Mm -hmm. And there's, it's frustrating. And, you know, people often ask me if my work is meditative to make, and I, they don't know that I can say that it is in that way, you know, I, and I don't know what they mean when they ask me that, mm -hmm. because to me, like meditation isn't just sitting down and falling asleep, you know, <laughs> or like, you know, relaxing with some incense and music. It's actually very difficult mm -hmm. to do. It's really hard to focus and to concentrate. And so, you know, maybe in a way that my work is meditative um, because I'm like challenging my mind and my body to be still, to be focused, mm -hmm. to follow through with, an idea to not get, um, or, you know, to allow frustration to come through, to allow impatience to, to present itself. Um, you know, the urge to want to, uh, be distracted, to reach for other things, you know, all of those, um, impulses, uh, present themselves while I'm working and mm -hmm. to let them say their word and then they <laughs> go away. There you go. And I think that's, then that's like the devotional part of it too, because there's some core of me that's attached to, like I said, that whatever idea I'm trying to manifest or just the idea is an image, obviously, but, you know, I'm, I'm devoted enough to the end of the process to, uh, to allow myself to engage in this somewhat arduous, uh, time consuming, uh, process so that, mm -hmm. you know, patience is, um, you know, a part of that, obviously, but the devotion is looking towards the future and being connected to it enough to endure what's happening now, because you have faith that there's the outcome is going to um, eventually happen. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like it, and it's also a way to kind of recenter my focus into just being where I am right in, in that moment. You know. Mm -hmm drawing triangles. <laughs> oh yeah. I love the way that you're, you're framing that as like the devotional thing is kind of like almost like a directionality to where you're headed. It's like keeping you aligned and keeping yeah. you like, it's kind of giving you almost like this, like you said, faith or like trust. And like that, if you really engage in all the little steps of the creative act, the thing will make itself ultimately. But I think what you're describing is, is a meditative experience in that when you sit down and meditate, whether it's like a formal meditation practice or when you're doing meditation in action through a form of making art, you it's all about the redirection of your consciousness back to that point of emphasis or that point of direction or point of uh, center. Do you know what I mean? Like, so it's always like, you know, not necessarily battling, but um, sort of like fencing with your own ego and your own distractibility and your own mind and having the commitment, but also I think it's also having sort of the discipline to redirect your awareness back to that point over and over and over and over and over again. Um, and so for me, that process of redirecting consciousness back to the here and now, back to the, the mark, back to the moment, back to the action is that meditative process. So you could in that frame do it. But I think what you're also speaking to about the slipperiness of language is interesting as well, because 
language can be so multifaceted. And if we're not really in agreement upon certain terms, we could be having discussion about something and talking about totally different things and maybe not even realizing it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, has this always been something that like you have been aware of in your process in terms of this sort of engagement with your your distractibility with the the mind sort of like fickle nature like or as you as you've matured as an artist have you become more and more aware of these like subtle almost unconscious tendencies of your mind yeah you know my work has as it has evolved I, i've been working in graphite um as my main medium on mechanical pencils on bristol um solidly since about 2005 mm -hmm. um so that's a long time okay. <laughs> and you know not only is the work time consuming and a little arduous but i have to also fend off a lot of questions like do, do your drawings come in color mm. <laughs> um, and so over over time my um you know my commitment another kind of you know faith and devotion to graphite and to mechanical pencil specifically is that you know over time I will abandon it once it stops challenging me and uh, or ceases to uh, present an image or uh, allow me to create an image that has the visual presence mm -hmm. that I want. And in the beginning, my work was, I mean, literally I was working in a sketchbook um, and then I found uh, instead of drawing paper, Bristol, and then the work started to ex expand in terms of scale and then complexity. And <clears throat> I was just sort of chasing imagery and content. And then it, at a certain point, it led me to these uh, kind of geometric uh, forms first as like square pixels and then as um, triangles as the, as the, the most fundamental sh shape. And it wasn't until I got into those drawings that I think I really encountered what we're talking about. Because when you're drawing, like if, um, you know, I'm doing something that's got a figure it's got clothing and there's some wildlife or plants or animals and text and stuff. My day of drawing is engaged in a, a bunch of different types of marks. Mm -hmm. And each one of those requires me to like reset. Like I'm not drawing text right now. I'm drawing a face. I'm not drawing a face. Now I'm drawing clothing. Now I'm drawing a plant. Now I'm drawing this. But with the, these drawings now, there's a, a large swath of time months at a time that are just drawing triangles mm -hmm. and that's i think you know before that it was squares uh that's when i really encountered the the shift that my mind and my body would go through in making work um, the first large scale kind of square geometric shapes <laughs> drawing i made um my wife noticed a, a difference in me after the a day of drawing and she told me that I wasn't allowed to make those drawings anymore because it made me nuts <laughs> and, um, so you know I I used to have that same kind of impression if I spent a day in the studio then I would walk down to like a coffee shop or whatever I needed to be around people and I felt a little wild at first like I had sort of forgotten how to interact with other people mm. uh, so it was so in my mind for such a long duration of time um, so it, yeah it was the, the the geometric forms that and the repetition mm. the somewhat monotony of the hours and hours you know and like then it's like wow, i want to get to like the next thing you know but i can't i have to go through this process first and so that was sort of like a fork in the road am i going to continue to do this work 
um, or, you know, or am I going to abandon it because it's not fun to do, you know, or, or whatever that means. Um, and then I, it's like, no, I, I need, I need to make this, so I need to readjust. I need to recalibrate myself and have different expectations about what my day is going to be like. Um, so that I think, yeah, that's, that's when that started happening. And even now, like with the drawing that's behind me that I've been working on for about a year now, and it's not a year of like eight hour days, unfortunately, yeah, yeah. It's, it's other stuff going on. Uh, you know, the, the triangles, it's like, I get to studio cam drawing triangles and then <laughs> I get to the clouds part. And then I'm like, I don't want to draw clouds. I want to draw triangles and it's a whole <laughs> It's clouds time now, and I have to then, in a way, kind of shift my consciousness to becoming clouds because I'm not yeah. drawing things from observation. I'm actually drawing things from impressions that I get from observations that I'm making. And I, I, you know, like I, I have a nice drive into um, campus at UCSB where I teach, and you know, I have to be somewhere. But there's this like amazing cloud cover over the mountains by the beyond the airport so there's a slough and then there's the airport and then there's foothills and then there's the mountains we've had wonderful clouds lady i just want to stop and like just you know stare at the awesomeness of nature yeah. i have somewhere to go so i have to i have to to grab that screenshot in my mm -hmm. mind hold on to it and cherish it because life won't let me just sit there and stare at the mountains um so it, it, it's just strange orientation to um become the different parts in my drawing to also pull from past impressions. Yeah. You know? So I, you know, thinking about like patience and devotion too. this, a lot of this, I guess I learned from uh, when I worked as an art installer before I moved up to Santa Barbara and I would sit on the freeway for three hours going home and just thinking about all the stuff I wanted to do in the studio later, but I couldn't because I was trapped on the freeway, you know? So the practical reality. Yeah. Practical realities of life has always been something that I've been able to develop patience around until there's that, that moment that I get to be in the studio. Yeah. I think that's amazing how you're like describing the way that the actual process of the particular imagery is affecting your state of mind and state of being in such distinctly different ways. And I find that um, I can definitely relate to that in terms of like the kind of quality or attention you need to have toward a certain kind of mark or a certain type of form shifts. And it's kind of subtle, like for anyone looking outside in, it just looks like you're kind of doing the same action, but really like internally, there's a totally different awareness that needs to be brought into play. And so when you're in those, it's interesting how like your wife said, like, you stop doing those drawings, they're driving you mad, like those geometries and the, the, uh, the repetition, the monotony, like you're saying, but also like something about those geometries, I find to be very, un, like, they can be incredibly healing, but they can also be like unsettling too, depending on like how deep you're in them. I think about like the overwhelming like experience visually you might have like on a, a really big psychedelic when you just can't stop seeing all these fractal patterns around you. And yeah, they're beautiful and amazing, but eventually they become like so consuming that you're like, okay, I'm done with this, you know? And, um, and so I'm, I'm relating in that way to maybe like how like the imagery of that geometry has its attraction, but then it gets to a point where it just, it's overwhelming. So I think it's great that you've kind of developed an awareness of that to know when to like take breaks, 
to know when like it, you've kind of gone so deep in that hole of like concentration with these forms that you need to come out and like immerse yourself in society. I think that self-awareness is, is crucial as artists because our work can consume us both in a very positive way, but it can also, everything's got its yin and yang, you know, it can flip us to the other side if we're not aware of kind of these subtle inner workings in our mind. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the fractal, overwhelming fractal experience you're alluding to, um, you know, when you're done with it, it might not be done with you. Mm -hmm. You have to find a way to maintain yourself, your sense of self, and then get to the end of the ride, you know? <laughs> exactly, that enduring, right? And enduring. so even within your own drawing, you, you use that word, I think, like to endure even sometimes the the trials or even the, the like minute suffering that comes like, I got to do this, finish this section so I can just keep moving forward on that path. Right. Yeah. There, um, there was a, a John Adams when I was doing uh, drawings about colonial American history. I did a John Adams drawing and I would do like kind of trinities of text around my characters. This, that, that one said endure, suffer and die. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like, you know, but I kind of was like looking, that was, that was a phrase from the book of Job, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, but I was kind of looking at it more in like maybe a Buddhist context, mm -hmm. you know, where like you're, you're, you're acknowledging that that is the process and then you're choosing. And I guess that's existentialism too. You're choosing to, to proceed anyway, yeah. regardless of that uh, reality. Yeah, you know, definitely. I thought, I thought the other day that, um, and this is a sensation that I've had a lot recently over the past couple of years, you know, that where I get to work, sit there you know i look to my left i can see the the sun coming in and the parking garage from the east and is casting these big shadows and then i think you know i'll be sitting here and then going in the other direction um later today and then when i do that it's like the day collapsed into a single moment where i blinked i was now eight hours later wow. heading in the other direction and i wondered you know on my last day on earth will it seem like none of this ever happened? Because that's kind of my impression at the end of the day. And it's sort of my relationship to time also. And maybe that gets back around to the endurance that it takes to make something that's incremental with the faith that there will be the outcome that you want. It's that there's only ever the moment anyway. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a, it's a sad thing when it's over. Yeah. And my saddest day is when the drawing is finished. And actually the, the excitement that I feel in making work, uh, it's like I get I get the thrill of a finished drawing about a week before it's done. Mm. And that last week is the hardest one for me because it's the, th the thrill is gone almost, you know, <laughs> like, you know, or I experienced it already, and I just yeah. need to labor through. And this, and then that last week is also then what am I going to do next? Next, yep, exactly. And then, then the easel's empty, and then I'm sad and then there's the new drawing and then I'm happy again you know yeah oh man I can totally relate to that that feeling that you're speaking to because like when you're making these works of art especially works that take the exorbitant amount of time that you're putting into what you do um you become it's a relationship that you're having with this drawing this kind of like a love affair in some ways and it's going to have its peaks and valleys, but as you get toward this sort of crescendo moment where everything is just coming together and you can see the finished product coming to be, like you can almost like see the end of the road from like a mile away, like you just see it on the horizon. 
and it's this feeling of joy. Then you get there, you're like, oh man, like it's all that in the feeling. And then you're like, what's next? Like what's next? Like, cause like, um, and that's part of, I think the journey of an artist too, is being willing to put things aside and, and being back at square one again, starting over again and getting comfortable with that clean slate all over again. And I think that for me, I'll, I'll, I'll probably always have a little struggle with that because I know exactly what you mean. Like you get to this point where like the excitement, where you see like this crystallized vision of what you've been feeling inside presented right in front of you. And you're like, yes, like it came through here it is. And then now what? Um, and so we have to like find ways to engage our practice such that we can enter the next piece as seamlessly, smoothly as possible. Um, and there are little tick tips and tricks that various artists do for me. Like I'm always like, as I'm finishing a piece, I'm always ready. For, I'm always like kind of on the side, preparing the next one, preparing the surface, kind of mapping out the composition a little bit as I want it, sort of planning out some of my color palettes a little bit so that when that piece is done, I can immediately like move it, wrap it up, put it away and get the next one going. But it is, it is kind of like a loss, almost this feeling of there is like this kind of little grief that happens. But I think that's a, a great lesson for life, like this ability to let go and create space for what's new and not be attached to what we're doing. But as artists, it's it's hard. It's something we, I think, are constantly battling with this feeling of attachment to our work in such a way. And so I look at them when I think of my own works, like they, it's almost like you're birthing something into the world and then you just have to let it live its own life. It's like, it's almost like we're animals in nature that just like birth a child and then they just have to survive immediately. Like we can't be there to nurture them anymore. You know what I'm saying? And so like having this mentality of letting them go and live as if like they have to fight for their own self to live is kind of helpful for me. You know, um, William Blake uh, wrote about love and death, um, having a relationship to each other. And I'm not going to try to explain whatever he, we thought he meant with that. But it occurred to me when you're talking about the metaphor of the work being birthed and then uh, needing to let go. And I, I feel like what I, you know, with what I was just describing with the, the thrill happening about a week before a drawing is finished, you know, when I, when I'm finished with the work, it's kind of, it has died in a way. Like, um, I was looking at a part of the drawing behind me, um, after I had uh, done part of it, like maybe a couple of days after, and while I was doing this one section, I wasn't sure I liked the way that it was looking and stuff because I was doing it and I had all the options in front of me of making changes and, and whatever, then once I made a commitment, made the sets of marks, let it sit for a duration and come back to it, that, that part of the drawing was no longer alive to me. It, it, it didn't ask for any more work to be done to it. It was, it was itself mm -hmm. um, fully. And when it's, so that's the experience that I have when I, when I finish a drawing, any, any drawing, if it's just a bunch of squares or if it's a bunch of rendered uh, imagery, it's alive um, until that, that feeling in me happens where I, I don't see any more work that I need to do with it. And I think that part of my, my grief, my sadness that I feel when a drawing is done because it no longer needs me anymore. Mm -hmm. So I, 
I think, you know, like nobody ever says, I want to have a teenager. They say, I want to have a baby. And maybe, <laughs> you know, babies, you have attachment to teenagers you wish would go away. And I, <laughs> I feel like that my work, when I'm done with it, they've, they're 18 years old and they're ready yeah, to go. They're ready and to go. So, yeah. So my morning is like, now I don't, I don't have any more role in that entity's life. And then they're just, they're on their own, whatever happens. Yeah, exactly. They have to survive. They have to survive out there. And right. like, um, like I tell my students sometimes, like you can't be there standing next to your work and fighting for it to live and people to yeah. look at it. Like, why don't you look at this piece? It's beautiful. Like, can't you yeah. see? Like, no, it has to, it has to speak for itself on its own terms in its own way. You're not going to be able to sit in the gallery or in any sort of exhibition space by it 24 seven. Yeah. You have to trust that. And just, that's why I like process and being really in your words. And I feel the same way about my own process devotion, the devotion to your process and the faith or the trust that comes through that, that what goes into that work will ultimately come out of it in, and sort of reflect into the consciousness of those who see it. And those who are meant to like resonate and receive it will, and those that aren't won't. And that's the nature of art. Not everyone's going to love everything you do. Not everyone's going to be moved in such a way that they want to acquire that piece so they can experience it day in and day out. It's just really, there's one person potentially. Yeah. Um, and that's something different relative to maybe other art forms. For example, like with music, everybody can experience it in the same way at once a million people in one moment. Um, but for an original work of art, you know, minus the digital, you know, replication of it on the internet, you can only see the one thing if you're presented before it. So it's a, it's a different relationship we have to have with it, but the letting go is key. And I think that metaphor of letting go, not on the art is also for me, so reflective in my own life of noticing where I'm attaching to all sorts of qualities of my experience. And uh, you kind of brought up like Buddhist sort of frameworks and philosophy of like suffering and endurance um, and sort of how like that is kind of part of the landscape of our life. Um, when we can let go of our attachment to these things that we label as suffering, um, then we can start to experience more nuanced or subtle levels of experience that maybe is um, the sort of ground underneath all of that from which suffering or ecstasy arises. It's kind of like more of like an even playing field. And for me, I'm always trying to, through meditation, meditative practice or explorations of my own consciousness in various ways through art making, I'm always kind of seeking that sort of space from which the, the duality dissolves into um, ultimate unity. And so it's um, art for me seems to be kind of like a gateway in some way to that experience when we can learn to let go of our attachments to these you know, outcomes. Yeah. A word that occurred to me when you're describing that as intimacy, mm -hmm. um, I think that's from the, your music metaphor and that there's a singularity uh, in the um, engagement with a something on a rectangle you know in a space and one of the one of the people who i'm trying to engage with is myself as a 12 year old looking through art books and having you know obviously that's a mediated experience with art but as a 12 year old it's an authentic experience mm -hmm. and it's, it's an experience with yourself and with the artwork that's communicating to you through the its reproductions 
And so I, I feel like that idea of trying to connect with an audience, one consciousness at a time, I think is a, a is, you know, I don't know, it might be, you know, a healthier way to think about how our work um, in, can influence others. Um, I don't know that I totally buy into the, you know, we make our work for ourselves. I think that that's, we, we define what we're going to make because we are the ones who have to do it. Mm -hmm. so we could have a great idea that sounds like a, it's something that we wouldn't ever want to actually do. Mm -hmm. you know, that's why it's fun to be a teacher because you can tell other people to do your dumb ideas for you. <laughs> you don't have to do it, right? <laughs> but that's that's a conversation mm -hmm. I have with students too. It's like, well, here's my idea, but you know, ultimately you're the one who has to commit to it and spend the time mm -hmm. to do it. So you, you have to have a feeling of love with this concept. Yeah. So go through the process to make it. But yeah, this idea of like of intimacy, of connecting with one person at a time, that also drives the conversation of motivation of why do we do what we do away from market concerns, which mm -hmm. probably pervert and distort the motivations of artists and also yeah. our image of what successful art is or what good art is the valuation of it either qualitatively or monetarily and it, it just ground you know put it back down to like you know on, as an individual you're making it or you're experiencing it and that experience is authentic and true and the only thing that's happening in that moment um, and like, you know, the work, when it leaves you, you know, it's, it, like we're saying, it's, it's on its own now. Mm -hmm. And obviously there's ways to manipulate the context to change the way that people perceive what you do. And that's what curators do, galleries, mm -hmm. museum staff does. Um, but just, uh, kind of erasing the context around it, you know, the work is going to engage with whoever it's going to engage with and it's going to open whatever doors it's going to open. Mm -hmm. And I think that's uh, probably an attitude that is very much what an artist would think because yeah. artists are, you know, so uh, referential and <laughs> have <laughs> lofty ideas about their work, kind of like what I just said. Yeah, um, And, you know, there's obviously the, the practical realities uh, of how work moves around in the world and the things that we have to do as artists to promote it. And, it, you know, in an ideal world, I think most artists would um, do what we're talking about, we lovingly create our things and then we throw it into the wind and then hope something blows back at us, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, but you know, that's, that's not how that works totally. Yeah. <laughs> We no, for it too. definitely. I mean, it's an interesting landscape when it comes down to this notion of like being an artist, but also trying to create sustainability around your practice so that you can continue to dive deeper and cultivate um, more intimacy, not only with the work that you do, but the way you approach it. And there's an interesting balance there. And there's an interesting also incongruity there in terms of how certain things tend to rise and certain things tend to not. And like why these things happen are determined by means that are out of the individual artist's control in a lot of ways. Like the only thing we can control is the quality of attention and intention that we put into our work. And we have to have that again, faith or trust in that process. But I want to, uh, there's a, a lot of things you said that I would love to like dive into and unpack and touch on more. 
first thing I want to like revert back to was how you how you just briefly mentioned how artists tend to like say they make work for themselves ultimately and I think that's part of it and we but we have to also recognize that the work is for most of us not everyone's like a recluse just making work hiding away never showing it to anybody ever I mean that is happening I'm sure right now plenty of artists who do that but in general a lot of us we want our work to be experienced and seen and related to by others and when I think about I think about this through my own process as an artist it's like I want to make images that I do want to see myself, like things that I feel inside of me, things that I kind of visions I have or experiences I have um, that I want to try to crystallize in a form that I can share with others. But when I think about that self who wants to see it and the self of others that want to experience it, I'm trying to reach to the same universal self, the consciousness that is beyond identity, that is beyond the individuated expressions that Eric and Martin are like, what is that ground that is beyond that? And I'm, and, and this is maybe my idealist artist fantasy in my mind, but like that oh. sort of, that is what I'm, that is ultimately what I'm pointing at is like this ground of imagery that speaks to something beyond uh, the frameworks of an individual's personality or, or life experience. And, um, and maybe that's just a pipe dream, but that's something that does come to my mind that I try to, intentionally cultivate through how I approach art making ritualistically creating rituals around what I do and so forth um does that resonate with you at all that idea of like kind of like connecting seeing the work you want to see yourself but like redefining what yourself the self is that you're speaking to in relation to the self of others yeah absolutely uh I think that balancing the both both those concepts that you're you're not only the one doing it but you're doing it for yourself in a lot of ways because these are your visions as you say i i relate to that too that's the way i, I feel like i come up with ideas i i have a flash in my mind and then i try to you know that's a moment and then it takes a year and then now it's a thing exactly <laughs> but you aren't just talking to yourself and even the the visual language that you're using is situated within a cultural context and you're you've been indoctrinated to ascribe meaning to certain types of elements to forms and representations and stuff like that and maybe part of it can touch on to some sort of idea of universals um uh either in you know elementary shapes or the way that we um represent you know a hand for instance either like as a hand or like as a foreshortened dynamic thing mm -hmm. that we've all been kind of trained in a visual language to respond to those kinds of things. And sometimes I think we, we forget that it's, it is um, a conditioning that we've mm -hmm. all gone through so that we can have a common experience and we can talk to each other. You know, obviously language is a, is a huge part of that because you didn't speak our language and you listen to our conversation, you derive no meaning from it. Exactly. Uh, Alan Moore in his book, Jerusalem has a section. I think he ripped this off from James Joyce, but it's like the language of the angels. And it's just a total made up language that goes on for pages and pages. And he described too, that after that, he went kind of nuts because he was thoroughly engaged in creating an, a made up language that nobody else could understand. And I think the project with that was trying to engage with the uh, limits of language 
and see if you could transcend it somehow. Um, you know, something that I uh, do often in the studio to try to disrupt my mind and, and what it's trying to get away from is I'll play music and um, maybe like an audio book at similar volumes. I can't quite hear either. Or one time I went through a phase where I was listening to throat singing and wolf howls and our wolf calls. And what emerged was a third language. And I mm -hmm. felt like I could understand both of these things through their meshing with each other. Wow. So, you know, maybe that was an example of the hallucinatory capacity of the brain that is trying to make order out of things that are disordered or um, in contrast or, or have a friction uh, with each other. That, yeah, that like friction that becomes a creative uh, impulse. So, mm -hmm. you know, there, there is maybe something that you're doing something that's disrupting your normal mode of understanding based on how you were trained and your conditioning. And then you're intervening on that process and you're starting to understand something that's a little incomprehensible to you. And I, and I think uh, <laughs> I hadn't really thought about that in those terms until right now, but I think that that's, if I could do anything, I would want to create an image that was incomprehensible to somebody, but that they had a feeling there was some meaning there. So mm -hmm. I, I feel like that's as far away from the conditioning as I can maybe get yeah um, while still trying to connect with others because if you make something that's total nonsense you're not going to reach an audience so yeah but if you want to try to find something mysterious surprising ineffable um sublime you know you're you're trying to reach past all of our limitations and touch something that do either doesn't exist or we can't perceive because of our limitations. Yeah. I think that's exactly kind of what I'm trying to point at is like, I totally, I feel like the more I'm explore my own consciousness, the more I understand all the conditioning that I've been sort of like wrapped up in my whole life. And, but the, the tricky note is, is that like, you can never get fully outside of your conditioning because it's a part of how you traverse the landscape itself through your awareness of what thing, how to differentiate one thing from another. Um, and I think about this a lot sometimes through the lens of, as a father um, and having watched, you know, one child go from an infant, just pure, like unconditioned consciousness. And then me actually playing the part of conditioning them, yeah. seeing my son, who's about to be five, like all the conditioning that I'm giving him right now, one day he's going to have to dismantle that. Like, I'm, <laughs> it's almost like I'm giving him a problem that he's going to have to solve later down the road. Just like the problems I've been given, I can, I'm having to solve right now. And, um, and I, I'm always been so curious about the consciousness of, of a, brand new pure born infant child like how they perceive images and light and sounds and words and like because all of those filters of conditioning in terms of especially through language or through even just understanding tactile experience hot versus cold right high you know falling off something is going to hurt gravity getting to know like the conditions of this earthly experience like i'm always like so curious like what that feeling is like to have no conditions. And I can say I've 
tasted it through psychedelic experiences in the most like minuscule of ways and through deep meditative experiences where like almost all of those conditions for just a micro moment subside and there's just this spacious energetic being but immediately i'm brought back into the the uh, fetters of my own programming um and so as artists it's like i think that's kind of what i'm in it's like i'm trying to point to that space or trying to access that space through art making or through image cultivation of like what is sort of that essence space beyond the conditioning but maybe it's a futile effort um and that you're engaging is, yeah i think um a concept that i stumbled across um again referring back to william blake there's a book called william blake versus the world and it's a part biography and it's a part lots of other things it's a um multifaceted uh, take on William Blake, his time period, his personality, his upbringing, his, his artwork, his aspirations, what was happening historically at the time. But one of the things that kind of blew my mind about that book was they mentioned the default mode network, mm-hmm. which is what psychedelics evidently shuts off. Yeah. And the default mode network is the story that this is my paraphrasing of this author's version of it. Um, uh, never trust an artist, by the way, to explain <laughs> things. They'll get every, get it wrong every time. Um, <laughs> but that's our joy. Yeah. Uh, Mode Network is the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves and about others so that we can develop expectations mm-hmm. and, and travel the world. And evidently, um, what they've discovered, they dis- this was discovered accidentally, and then they've discovered that um, psychedelics, LSD, and psilocybin both calm that part of the brain and the theory with William Blake was that how he was raised because he was sort of an unruly child he wasn't in school um, until later in his childhood and he he had a thoroughly unstructured or you know I don't know if thoroughly is the right word but he had an unstructured childhood where he wasn't learning the difference between himself and the world around him and so the theories that he carried that um, mindset, I guess, into his adulthood and, in, and into his uh, believing of or believing in, you know, what we would call visions or his visionary capacity. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, can you through visual means turn somebody's, like change somebody's brain? <laughs> you know, uh, I think that the greatest thing, gift that we can give people is to give them the inspiration to then pursue that kind of a thing. You know, yeah. like, what's the greatest gift that I think I ever received from a, a piece of art is the inspiration to go do something about what I just witnessed, experienced, and and felt in, in that moment, in that intimate moment with that, um, you know, whatever. Uh, I Like, my mind's going back to this show that I saw at the Norton Simon Museum when I was, I don't know, 15 or something, and it was the Derblau writer uh, group. So it's like Paul Clay and uh, Kandinsky and those folks. And I was like, holy shit, I need to get home right now and do something. I'm amazing now. I was like filled. I was so enthr- so th- enthralled in the work that I became the, the work. And I, it's like, I, not like I could do this, but like I need to do something about this, this feeling that I'm mm-hmm. having. Wow. And that's, that I think, is pointing to what we're talking about because you can do that in lots of different contexts you if you know maybe i i would get excited by 
uh, a naked lady painting. And I want to go home and paint naked ladies, you know, but that, so that work is inspiring something of itself to somebody who's receptive to that type of image. So if you as the artist have a different aspiration to influence your audience and change their consciousness in, in a certain way, then you're going to choose different imagery. Yeah. Then to redirect somebody in, in the direction that you're trying to get them to go. So, you know, the, the cycle goes, the artist has inspiration, the artist manifests the inspiration in whatever the thing is. And then the artist, uh, presents it to others somebody else has an experience with it they first of all they're attracted to it then secondly they're transformed by it in that moment and then they're inspired to go and then be different afterwards they mm -hmm. irrevocably changed um af after that you know yeah uh, so that's like um you know thinking about uh the market and sales and success in, in that context in galleries museums or art fairs you know, I, I think that instead of focusing on that, it's it, the question is more like, you know, have you inspired awe and wonder in the hearts and minds of the stranger today? Yes, <laughs> exactly. Know, that's, that's that's the goal. And I think that's a that's a diff, a very difficult, uh, a lofty goal. But I think that that should be at the core of whatever we do, even if we also want to cultivate uh, a more venal um, materialistic aspect to ourselves, too, if that's the path that we chose. You know, you said something earlier about um you know it, the sustainability as an artist but the my word sustainable is is changed into day job mm -hmm. that's the vision that i had for myself as a young wannabe artist and kind of starting to navigate that world and see how things worked and you know uh, engaging artists engaging artist biographies and these kind of stereotypes of the crazy genius thing um i thought well there's there's something to the uncertainty of your work being monetarily viable and i was also suspicious of the influence of market forces on the work itself not what gets chosen because the work's made already you could it can come from a good place and then end up in this monetary system but like letting the the it's a eventual movement within a portable commodities system if that is in the work itself then i it maybe it's i could consider it corrupted in in some way mm -hmm. but uh my vision then being suspicious of the influence of the market on a on an artist or the pressure i thought well my great goal in life is to become a a, a janitor so that i can then support my art in my spare time um and i don't know why janitor i guess i also didn't think I was smart or capable maybe, or, you know, I just sort of thought, well, what's, what's in it? You know, I'm coming from a working class family too. I was thinking of working construction and stuff with that for whatever reason, janitor became the word in my mind. And what I've since learned about is the root of the word janitor being Janus or however you pronounce that. And Janus being a Roman God of doors and gateways. Mm. And so my vision was to be a, gateway yes <laughs> a, a gateway by day and an artist by night and that's kind of what has happened being a teacher is my day job so i am literally a, a gateway um where students come through me and then are transformed um after me um so that was my way of protecting myself my vision as an artist and and trying to create a sustainable uh life and um being able to make my work but also not worry about the um, financial consequences of 
spending a year making, or in this case, more than a year on one piece, you know. Um, but I have had enough experiences showing my work, selling it, not selling it, being written about, not being written about, that in intervals where I feel no eyes on me is a very fertile time. Mm-hmm. So I, I, uh, and because, you know, like I'm in a room alone by myself, but I can have who I think is waiting for my work to show up in my head. And that's a destructive force. So as long as I can keep the voices out of my head, Mm -hmm. of who I think is my audience or like the facilitators, you know, uh, of the work's transmission to the world, I keep their voices out of my head, which I'm pretty good at. But also just kind of get away from having any pressure on me from anywhere. Like it's the goal for me is to be thoroughly ignored and then for a duration and then to be remembered once I pop my head back up again, like, Oh, you are, where have you been this whole time? I actually heard that from a, a gallerist recently. Like, oh, where are you, where have you been? Yeah. Um, I've been being me just like you're you <laughs> heard from me in a while. And that's a good thing. Cause I need, I need that space. Uh, mm-hmm. like a little delicate lemur. Uh, Man. So, dude, that's really beautiful what you've just said. I mean, I can so resonate with it. And I think it's such an important message to any artist out there who's listening. Um, just in like any aspect to our consumerist materialist paradigm that we're sort of unraveled in, um, the influence of money and of success or fame is very corrupting to the soul and to the spirit that wants to express and communicate um through these means of art making in these deep ways and we have to be very cognizant of it um that being said there are probably plenty of artists who are who are just happenstance commercially very viable and showing and selling all the time who are able to guard themselves from these things um but then there are going to be a lot of who are aren't um because money is very um sticky things stick to it and things, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like this tape ball that like everything bit of dust all of a sudden gets on it. And you have to be very conscious of how you handle that and how you navigate that space. But what you're saying, spend your money as soon as you get it. And then it's, it ceases to exist. Then it's not sticky. (laughs) Then it dissolves. It's both. Right. But what I mean by sticky is that like, it's just like, it's going to, um, it's going to influence your decision-making in ways that aren't always yeah. so helpful for your uh, cultivation of, of your deeper well-being. Um, because all those things are ephemeral. They will dissolve. They do not last. They are not what is, they are not what life is about ultimately when you dig deep and really uh, pull the layers of, of reality back. But so don't, don't you think that some artists are kind of naturally perhaps or just you know their personalities are in line with participating in the um the kind of industrial production level of art making for an a uh, an economy to support an economy and for those artists they they are they're already oriented towards that kind of a world and for them that's their that's their nature mm-hmm. you know that is not our nature I can probably assume that we are yeah. engaged with this. You know, that yeah. is not our nature. So to us, we're 
we view it, we value it in a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, other artists who are oriented differently, that's their, that's maybe their truth and that's, that's their nature. And so for them, there isn't a friction. It's more of like, you know, I don't know, in a way they're just, they are an engine that, I don't know, that's a, I don't know, that's a good metaphor. They're a, they're a machine pumping out stuff or whatever, like, they're yeah. getting, but, you know, more red, more lines, more rectangles and and then yeah. comes out and they're a fit for that kind of um that level of, of the art economy i've i've seen several friends who who have um, drifted into that and that i don't see any great crisis of the soul for them yeah it seems like i like i said i feel like it's their nature yeah and, you know it's not our nature and and unfortunately the practical realities there's that phrase again of just the world in general of having to have money to pay for rent, to pay for the utilities, and just our entire, like you, if you don't have $100, you can't walk outside because you'll have no clothes on, you know? So like <laughs> the baseline of our lives is ruled by, defined by money. Yeah. And so that's going to be in everything that we, every part of our world that we try to navigate. Yeah. Um, so we, you choose where you want to fit in. Yes. That's where my, I'm Janice. Uh, the Janice, the janitor. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I protected myself from that, you know, seeing it. And I, I came to a fork in the roads early in my career where I was presented with the opportunity to leverage the momentum that was building around the series of work that I was doing. And uh, I was given basically a list of types of uh, iconography that was derived from my work that the gallerist was seeing on the sales end that was popular. And we had a conversation and they said, this is the stuff that we're seeing that people are responding to, collectors are responding to. They also told me a lot of artists like my work, which isn't a compliment from a gallerist because they don't buy work. (laughs) So I was being told what collectors were engaging with. And that was a moment where I thought, okay, who's my audience? Mm-hmm. I I felt great that there was a community of people out there that was engaging with my work. Okay, good. And now I'm being told to stay in that lane and continue to make this kind of work that has these five list of five things and different permutations. And I said, okay, I can do that. It's my work anyway, and I like making those five things, and I can I can shake sh- shake them up and do them slightly different each time. So I go home, I get, I go to the studio, I'm like, all right, let's, let's leverage this success. And then nothing happened because mm-hmm. I just, it, it just, it's, I've said this in this way that like, I, I'm ineligible for success. Um, and I, I, I can't do these things or I couldn't, I couldn't manifest the will to make these copycat works for myself. And people say, well, it's not, you can't, it's that you don't want to, because that's more active. But I, I feel like it's more of, it's just my nature, you know, mm-hmm. I am thoroughly myself and I, I, I got myself here and I'll screw the rest of my life up on my own terms, you know, <laughs> and that's just the commitment that I've made. That's probably why I've, I've sort of maintained myself within like an academic setting too, because ac- academia is all about idealism and having the space to focus on what might seem like 
thoroughly insignificant minutia, but mm. that you uh, kind of bringing it back around, you know, you have the faith that this piece is a piece of a puzzle. If it's true, it's going to fit in somewhere eventually. Yeah. Um, and an, an example of that for me that I just occurred to me was, I was curious if the vines on my morning glory plant always twisted in the same direction or if they twisted in different directions. Mm. On JSTOR, I found an article where um, a team of scientists studied circumnutation in the genus Ipomia. And it's like, okay, that was awesome. I had what seemed like a totally crazy, not crazy, but like very specific question about something insignificant maybe. And it's, as it turns out, somebody has studied that. And wow. they wrote a whole paper about uh, counterclockwise circumnutation um, of the, the the reaching vine growth for ipomias, and then uh, also that the the flowers are wrapped clockwise, the buds when they emerge, and then they unfurl counterclockwise. Wow! And um, I have also heard that there was a Japanese physicist who said that the the true nature of the cosmos is left-handed it's counterclockwise and i don't know what that means but <laughs> um, you know the directionality of net natural growth uh and having a kind of inherent nature and that that being shared amongst species is just fascinating to me and that yeah. gets into those elementary forces those maybe universals if we're going to turn a spiral into a picture and not a, just a plant growing up a pole or a tree that when we talk about spirals or spiral growth, we're talking about, you know, some basic force that's creating or emanating, that all life is emanating um, mm -hmm. from. Um, and that might be where the, you know, we start to dip into, again, the universals. And then and then we, we talk about universals in, in terms of geometry. And then if we're talking about universals and geometry, it kind of leads us into sacred geometry yeah. because it's not just jump it's not just the basis of a composition it's the basis of the world on some super fundamental level to look yes. at it to see the emanation of everything yes i mean this is something i've always been so fascinated by is like and i think that's what a lot of artists have been fascinated by for many centuries is sort of the the universality within sacred geometry we think of like uh, Fibonacci, you know, the phi ratio, I think of forms that are related to like the flower of life and the seed of life and how that relates to cellular mitosis, how we see that on that level, the micro macro, you know, all these mysteries around creative process are, are what fascinate me all the time. And also are almost to me kind of like a, a thumbprint of some sort of order within the chaos that we experience in some ways. And um, I'm definitely attracted to that deeply. And I think what you're saying about um, having this, just this sort of like sink of having this sort of like intuitive question around the morning glory plant and it's twisting. And then that seeing that another human or a group of humans had the same question and they figured it out. Like that other people are curious about these seemingly insignificant components of life. Cause I find that within what we might consider to be insignificant, like the way a morning glory vine twists within that is encoded the secret of the entire universe. If we know how to look at it, if we know how to unravel it. And I think for me, that's also a part of 
the role of of an artist if there is a, such a role is that it's about sort of in uncovering or the sort of encoded perfection within the seemingly imperfect experience that we have in our day-to-day lives um through like we talked about earlier the enduring the suffering like these sort of difficult contrast right like that within that ground there is something else going on um and i think it's a it's a beautiful experience to be committed to that um journey of uncovering of unfolding of blooming in the counterclockwise manner that the flower unfurls like this is in my feeling deeply what life is really about the monetary success this is good people who get who like you were talking about some friends of yours like they're just built for this that's part of their dharma so to speak their path their karma like that's what they are here to do to learn the lessons they need to learn to ultimately grow their connection to what is deeper than those things but perhaps for you perhaps for me it looks a little different and nothing is better or worse than anything else. But at the end of the day, like here we are together, Eric, sitting here talking about all these amazing ideas because you and I are both genuinely invested in, in this sort of space of uncovering what is the ground of the human experience that we're all connected to so that through our art making, we can reach out and maybe build a bridge between one other person, which in my feeling and my idealist vision of the whole interconnected interdependent universe is by doing that with one you do with all on some fundamental level that we might not be able to perceive or touch um but it's still existent and and that's the magic of this whole game of art that's the magic of this whole role of artist um and that's how i feel and so i'm grateful to be able to connect with you like this and to be able to come across your work like your work has reached through the screens somehow and touched me in a deep place and really awoken within me this grand sense of awe of mystery of majesty that is life and so it's a reminder to me of that there's other people out there who are deeply devoted and invested in this process in order to create that experience for someone like myself and i cannot wait for the day when i can behold one of these pieces in person with my own eyes radiating off the actual surface because I can only imagine if they if they had that experience through a screen what it could be like um in person so I just want to thank you for for what you're doing and, and the work that you do and and for joining me today I mean we've been talking for an hour and eight minutes nice number uh <laughs> looking at the clock and um I just uh I, I don't want to take up all your afternoon we I feel like you and I could talk for a lot longer. I feel like we're just kind of almost scratching the surface of topics that we could explore together. And so maybe we're going to have to run this back at some point um, and maybe, maybe have something specific that we want to really dive into. I feel like this first episode, we're kind of engaging with each other on all these different ideas. And maybe another time we could spit, pick one lane and really see how far we can take it. Yeah. Um, I'd be into that. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you so much, Eric, for joining me today on the podcast and um, keep up the amazing work. Uh, The janitor of Santa Barbara right here (laughs) with us. I I love it. Thank you so much. All right. We'll talk soon. All right. Yes, definitely. Take care.
thank y'all so much for tuning in to this episode of Concerning the Spiritual and Art. Um, If you like what you're listening to, please uh, leave a comment. uh, Give me a rating on whatever podcast platform you're you're tuning in on. And uh, help me get the word out. Share with any friends or family, anyone you think might be interested in uh, what I'm doing over here. Super excited to bring a lot more of this content to you. Sending lots of love out to each and every one of you. Peace, y'all.